1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hi everyone, Ron Spomer back with another podcast. This is podcast number 16, and today I want to read from a book I wrote back in the uh, early 2000s. It was called Predator Hunting, Proven Strategies That Work from East to West. And a chapter that I particularly enjoyed is titled, Why Do They Do the Things They Do? And the sub title is called Come and Get It, The Call to Dinner. Most of us understand the basic premise of predator calling. The eaters hear the ETs calling, come and get it. So they do. But why cry wolf in the first place? What compels every bird, bunny, fawn, and frightened pup to wail in distress. Some have suggested that the sudden, sharp sounds are an attempt at distraction. Shock your uninvited dinner guest into dropping you and you might hastily excuse yourself from the table. But this doesn't quite explain why rabbits bawl when caught in a fence. Another theory holds that calling attention to your plight invites competition. At first, this sounds like a really stupid idea. More gluttons lusting after your flesh? Ah, but gluttons being gluttons, they're likely to squabble over the choicest morsels, giving said morsel a chance to escape. I can see possibilities in this approach. Let's say an inexperienced hawk sinks its claws into your hind leg instead of your lungs. You scream, you flop, you wail, and hi-o silver, your friendly neighborhood coyote comes to the rescue. Dog sees bird, dog attacks bird, bird sees dog, bird drops bunny and tries to fly away, dog chases bird trying to catch it, rabbit crawls into hole to lick its puncture wounds. Cry me a river, this could work. Yet another hypothesis suggests that a form of altruism is at work. The cry warns other animals away. We're not implying conscious choice here, but an instinctive, self-perpetuating genetic adaptation bred over millennia. Let us suppose that some ancient cottontails involuntarily screamed when attacked. Neighbors and friends heard and hid to live another day. 
They remembered the screams and hit again when they heard similar cries. Slowly, ever so slowly, over generations, the rabbit populations that screamed when attacked were the ones that flourished. The populations that didn't scream languished because their numbers were more quickly reduced. Bingo. Survival of the fittest. I don't know. Sounds like a stretch to me. Particularly when you consider that many species that shriek are loners and most predators that eat them are loners. There are limited chances to learn and limited benefits in flight once an attack is underway. If a bobcat already has a bunny in its clutches, it isn't likely to attack another bunny. Now, among colonial animals such as prairie dogs, this theory makes sense. When one shouts in alarm, dozens around it see what the fuss is about. Thus, prairie dogs bark warnings and dive underground when coyotes stroll through town. My favorite explanation for why prey animals scream hinges on observation and common sense. Terror. They scream because they're surprised, frightened, and just plain terrorized. And maybe because it hurts. What does a baby do when a stranger picks it up? Cries. What does a non-socialized puppy do when human grab it? Cries. What does a fawn, lamb, or calf do when cornered against a fence? You guessed it. It makes sense for it to keep quiet when you're trying to avoid detection. But once you're in the clutches, well, why not give voice to your hopelessness and despair? Terror. Call me anything but late to supper. We may never know exactly why prey animals cry, but I think we understand what motivates predators to respond. A free lunch, duh. Some response to panic cries may be genetic. Any species that's been around as long as coyotes or bobcats would have had benefited from an inbred curiosity to investigate the sounds of prey. The critter that moves toward the sound gets extra fuel and survives lean times, passing its traits to subsequent generations. The critter that ignores distress cries goes hungry and dies. No descendants to ignore the next distress cry. But education and experience, I believe, play a much larger role in how eagerly and quickly a meat eater answers the call. This explains why jackrabbit calls might elicit just a few responses in eastern forests, but eager responses in Wyoming sagebrush. Eastern coyotes should have a genetic curiosity to check out the alto whales of a big jack, but western coyotes have personal experience to drive them forward. Most predators learn to associate prey screams with food when dear old mom brings home a crippled but very much alive rabbit, bird, or fawn. Set down before the den of tumbling kits, the hapless victim tries to run, it's bowled over, it screams in terror, and it attempts to run again. The pups play with it, swat it, worry it, and eventually taste blood. They tear it apart. A couple of classes like this, and they are all ears when they hear that familiar hullabaloo. Later, when mom guides them on their first training hunts, they hear more wailing prey. Last one there gets the table scraps. Within weeks, like Pavlov's dogs, they're programmed to race to the dinner bell. Not so fast, Jordy. In puppyhood, the early responders get the worm, so to speak, but eventually complications modify behavior. Suppose the runt of the coyote litter one day gets left behind by its more energetic siblings and mother. Its sharp little ears detect that happy cry of fresh meat, and it rushes to be first in line for once. 
but when it rounds the corner, it stumbles onto a big, dark stranger that chases it off, growling and snapping at its heels. Thus is born the cautious responder. Similar scenarios may account for the slow approach of most bobcats. If they're living in coyote country, and most are, they quickly learn that a screaming rabbit could be the centerpiece of a coyote picnic. Not even a sharp-clawed, fully-grown tom bobcat wants to crash a party of nearly-grown late-summer coyote pups and their hard-bitten bitch. So, discretion being the better part of valor, cats creep, stalk, and watch. They take their time. Then there are the nervous fox, both red and gray. As pups, they learn pretty much the way coyotes do. Mom brings dinner on the hoof, they finish it off, and remember the sound effects. If they range where bobcats and coyotes are scarce, they learn about first come, first serve. Sometimes they catch a small hawk or owl in the bargain. But the first time they crash a party of bigger predators, they're lucky to escape with their lives. A sudden attack from what should have been dinner on the house can ruin a little fox's appetite for months. Thus educated, any carnivore comes more cautiously to the call. Competition. While Disney and Hollywood have systematically brainwashed generations with the happy myth of nature as harmony, predators have been living a grittier reality. Instead of singing and dancing together, they compete, squabble, and fight for limited resources. This leads to repeated, identifiable behaviors. Hunters who know those can change them to advantage. Territoriality. Unlike grazing animals, predators are aggressively territorial. They must be in order to survive. Grazers live amid a veritable ocean of helpless forage. Bite to the right, bite to the left, there's enough for everyone. And it isn't running away. Grazers can afford to amass in huge herds that provide protection from predators. Extra eyes and noses on alert. Extra bodies to surround and defend the young. Slower associates to deflect attention from you. Sharing the grass is an acceptable trade-off for that kind of security. Predators, on the other hand, would soon lick the platter clean and find the cupboard bare if they all congregated where food was abundant. Wolves and lions will join in cooperative packs or prides in order to take down large beasts, but they don't share their hunting territories with other packs. Coyotes will sometimes hunt in family groups when deer are the main course. Mated pairs of many species hunt together for a short season. Otherwise, predators are loners every cat for himself. To improve their odds of success, they stake out their living spaces based on relative prey abundance and they actively defend them. Woe to the wolf that trespasses into the heart of another wolf pack's territory. It will be torn apart. Territorial defense is why wolves, coyotes, and fox urinate on rocks and posts and why cats squirt against trees and scratch dirt piles over their dung. A need to protect the home turf sets coyotes and wolves to howling and mountain lions to prowling. They've got to show the colors, rattle the sabers, and intimidate the neighbors. Male mountain lions attack any other males they come across in order to maintain breeding rights to all females within their vast territories. While females might find enough prey to live comfortably within 20 to 50 square miles, males often defend 300 square miles in order to have access to additional females. 
Fox, being smaller and placing lighter demands on local resources, can live in smaller territories, perhaps three to five square miles. Bobcats, too. Adaptable coyotes might make do with a few square miles in rich country, but might range over a hundred square miles where food is scarce. Wolves require even larger home ranges. This need to spread out inspires pioneering among predators, which in turn fill new or recently emptied habitats. Young animals especially wander widely in late fall, either because of an innate yearning or a shortage of prey or as a response to pressure from established adults. When the resident top dog starts kicking your butt every time you come within view, you soon develop a taste for travel. Red fox and coyote pups may move 100, even 200 miles during this period, following predictable travel routes like ridgetops, cattle trails, and stream valleys. En route, they are set upon by established locals, so they keep moving until the harassment stops. If the hunting is good, they hang out their shingle. Wild E. Coyote, proprietor, no trespassing. Day by day, they extend or retract their territorial boundaries as necessary, marking scent posts and noting the no trespassing signs of neighbors until an uneasy fluctuating status quo is established. Where territories are overpopulated, constant conflict wastes energy. Excessive harvest depletes resources until everyone goes to bed hungry. Disease afflicts weakened animals and spreads throughout frequent contact. Misery and death follow until a shortage of predators enables rodents, rabbits, birds, deer, and other prey to again flourish. The few surviving predators, or pioneers from far away perhaps, can again earn a decent living and raise families, and the cycle repeats. There is some evidence that wandering may be genetic. The biggest, strongest, healthiest pups in any litter seem to disperse sooner and farther, as if some internal mechanism were pushing them. Humans should be able to relate to this. Children who are bright, strong, energetic, and creative seem to strike out on their own early and boldly, while the less secure, less successful kids stick close to home, becoming fodder for late-night comedians. Racist Troubles while we expect species to squabble among themselves, many of us are surprised to learn that some predators are, well, racists. Perhaps speciesists would be a more accurate term. This flies in the face of conventional wisdom. In Hollywood's reality, wolves and foxes frolic together, or at least ignore one another. In northern Canada, researchers have documented wolves regularly killing Arctic foxes and playing with their corpses. They don't eat them, they just toss them about, chase one another like Afghanis playing their version of polo with the bloody head of a dead calf. Mountain lion researchers have come upon bobcats freshly killed by cougars. Wolves have been documented killing cougars. Bobcats will surprise and kill young fox. Wolves will drive off coyotes and kill them if they get the chance. Biologists call all of this interspecific competition. Whether the critters understand that their resources are coveted by their neighbors or they're merely being bullies, the result is the same. The smaller animal gets marginalized. It's telling that widely disparate predators don't seem to exhibit interspecific animosity, while more closely competitive species do. The grizzly, for instance, will ignore the fox scavenging about its kill, but not the wolves. 
wolves and grizzlies compete for moose and caribou. Similarly, grizzlies catch and kill black bears. Thus, you don't find black bears in grizzly country unless there are trees large enough to climb. Lewis and Clark found silver tips far out on the plains, but black bears only in or near forests. The interspecific competitors of most interest to human hunters are fox and coyotes. To a large degree, the bigger canine hunts the same prey as the smaller, mice, voles, kangaroo rats, cottontails, and small birds. Neither probably appreciates the competition, but only the coyote is in a position to do anything about it. It harries, chases, and kills every red or gray fox in its territory. Death to the fox. What option does its little cousin have but to flee? Even if it stays and manages to keep one jump ahead of its persecutors, a fox in a coyote neighborhood will spend so much time looking over its shoulder it won't find enough to eat. 200 years ago, coyotes found themselves in the fox's boots, or paws, when wolves ruled most of North America. In the West, where there was room to see trouble coming and run before it got there, coyotes eked out a living, staying one jump ahead of their bullying cousins. In fact, much of coyotes' daily bread came in the form of bison carcasses left behind by sated wolves. In the East, however, Vast forests limited the availability of small prey species and enabled wolves to surprise coyotes at close range. Once wolves were extirpated from the east and forests were broken into a patchwork of fields and pastures where smaller, more easily caught prey could thrive, coyotes pioneered eastward. Today they live in virtually every state to the detriment of red and gray fox. Where wolves are again proliferating in the Rocky Mountains and Great Lakes states, coyotes are either declining or at least becoming much more cautious. When I was a boy, red fox were the biggest, baddest canine predators in eastern South Dakota. By the early 1970s, coyote populations began expanding east from the Missouri River hills and the fox melted before them. Today I'm shocked to see a red fox where in the 1960s they were common. Research in North Dakota revealed that fox learn to live where coyotes fear to tread. The bigger dogs, for instance, prefer large, relatively undisturbed chunks of rugged grasslands and pastures. Fox, therefore, settle closer to farms, towns, and disturbed agricultural fields. I've observed this same relationship in Idaho and Texas. Out on the sage and grass, I find coyotes. Around barns, in roadside culverts, and on the edges of towns, I find red fox. I stopped for gasoline late one night in McCall, Idaho, and suspected I'd been driving too long when I saw a red fox sitting between two of the gas pumps. But it was a red fox. The proprietor came out and fed it a hot dog. Normally, when I go to Texas, I see here and often hunt coyotes, but one year I hunted the Pecos River country and never saw so much as a track. Turned out it was sheep country and local ranchers had worked long and hard to eliminate every coyote within earshot. As a result, I saw more gray fox, raccoons, and skunks than I ever before. Last February, I called predators on several Texas ranches for three days and saw dozens of coyotes and two bobcats, but nary a fox. Two years ago in West Texas, we hunted at night, bringing in numerous swift fox, gray fox, and bobcats but no coyotes.
Bobcats are aloof to most of these internecine warfares because despite eating many of the same critters as foxes and coyotes, they're not dogs. Certainly they'll kill small fox and even coyotes when it's easy, and coyotes will take out bobcats when they think they can get away with it unscathed, but mostly each avoids the other. Cats hang in heavier cover using stealth to ambush prey. Fox and coyotes roam more open habitats, eat a more varied diet, and do more chasing. Thus, you can expect to find bobcats living among canines in areas with considerable brush, trees, riparian habitat, dense weeds, and jagged rocky cliffs. Here, they can hide, hunt, and escape the clutches of their enemies. Knowing these things can improve your success afield. If you hunt big, open, isolated country, expect coyotes rather than fox. In wolf country, expect coyotes to be less abundant or at least shy. And as you near more settled areas with crops, anticipate fox. If you see little or no coyote sign, watch for fox. Where you find considerable close cover, assume that a bobcat could be slowly stalking in for a look. Remember too that the presence of coyotes will inhibit a fox's response to a call. Depending on their experiences, fox may run from rather than to the cries of a wounded rabbit. You may have more luck calling with a mouse squeaker. You may need to work near scape cover, get closer to your subjects before they'll respond. It may take them a bit longer to come in and when set up near escape cover. Many predators will also certainly try to circle downwind. You don't have to be a world-class naturalist to hunt predators, but it helps. Study behavior both in the field and in the library, and you could become a better predator hunter. And that was my summation of what's going on out there. That's actually very interesting. I have never read anything from that book because I it didn't title <laughs> appeal to me to be honest but hey that was extremely fun to hear about the different predators and well, how they live I mean I, yeah. I had no idea I just thought it was all about predator hunting which right. personally I'm not interested in right well there's plenty in here about predator hunting obviously this was sort of the introduction but it's a topic that doesn't get covered very often you know we, we talk about which calls to use and how to set up and all the ins and outs and tactics but how many times do you read about why are they doing what they're doing so I'm being curious I looked into it you know a lot of that is just my conjecture thinking thinking through and going okay why would a fox not come in well there's coyotes around if he comes in when there's a coyote there he soon learns that he's in trouble so he doesn't come in anymore or at least he's very cautious when he comes in so i just put all those things together and then did a little bit of research and and uh corroborated what i was thinking threw it out there so what do you think the impact of the wolf on coyotes in this area in the mountain well you know it's like i i said in this when you've got the kind of competition that a 130 pound wolf pack each animal is bigger than the coyotes by about three or four times and there's a whole pack of them and they're not exactly slow i would think the coyotes have got to get out or crawl into a hole and hide but the ones that learn to evade coyote or wolves can subsist on their leavings. That's the way it used to work back in the bison day. I mean, something that folks don't really think about enough is that 
The reason we don't have a lot of wolves now in the lower 48 is not just because the ranchers and farmers wanted them gone and worked hard to get rid of them, but it's because they no longer have the resources to fuel those big packs of predators. Hey, they're eating deer and elk. Yeah, and you know, and credit to hunters because we helped restore significant populations of deer, elk, and all the other large ungulates, except for bison. And that was the key animal for, for wolves. The reason we had these big packs of prairie wolves roaming everywhere is because they had something like 30 to 40 million bison to eat. I mean, that's a lot of meat on the hoof, folks. That's a lot. But nowadays, they're called Angus <laughs> and Holstein and Hereford, and nobody wants the wolves to eat them. No, because they take our steaks away. Well, you know, if people want to live on this planet and expand our numbers, we, we have to convert it to something that we can eat. Um, I think bison is a great resource, and we should have kept more of them, and we still have a chance to do that, and lots of ranchers are raising bison now, and we're returning them to places where we can, but it's a big, strong animal that walks through fences like spider webs, so they tend to get in trouble when you see them walking through your lawn, whether that's a small patch of Kentucky bluegrass or 100 acres of corn, you probably don't want a bison herd in there, but... Neither do you want a pack of wolves running through the area and eating your cattle and your sheep and your hogs and your kids. So <laughs> there you go. Coyotes kind of the same way. They don't necessarily want to see these big wolves, but if they're there, what are they going to do about it? So, move? Yeah, move to where? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. In a new well, neighborhood? Yeah, and that is what they try to do, and that's what I said about the fox moving into town. Remember when we lived in Boise, we had foxes in our backyard in town. You'd Absolutely. see them. Yeah, you'd see them right on Broadway. They were in nesting and, and having dens in the cemeteries and just, just typical stuff. It's an adaptable little animal. Nobody bothers it in town, but the coyotes are afraid to come in town. So the fox can flourish in town. Well, when the coyotes figure it out like they did in L.A. and they start moving into town, now you've got serious problems. And then, nobody, that's just, nobody wants their cat to be coyote. Yes, dinner. yes. And I saw a video recently where a coyote in somewhere over there grabbed a little three-year-old out of the oh, yard. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah they, they've been implicated. I think they've killed a few, few children. But, you know, it's to be expected. You've got a predator that takes small, helpless prey, and there's a little toddler outside. And if people don't... Yeah, don't, don't teach those coyotes to be afraid of humans. You just let them feed in your backyard and eat the leftover dog food and cat food and stuff. Yeah, that stuff's going to happen. I mean, that's part of the reason why we hunt predators. One of the things where we live, we haven't seen that many coyotes. We've just taken one from our land that was got too close. So what, why do you think that is? Um, I think around here, it's just because of the pressure. There, You know, it's a real country and everyone enjoys hunting and they... In the off-season, they go after predators like that because the pelts are valuable. Then you have animal damage control for all the farmers and ranchers, especially the sheep ranchers. You know, the coyotes are really hard on sheep. So if you've got big flocks of sheep around, they have to keep the population of coyotes pretty low or the sheep are not going to make it. That brings up a question that, that I, I struggle with. The whole anti-fur uh, movement, mm -hmm. yet they will... They want, you know, clothing and it's synthetic, and that's even worse on our environment. Yeah. 
what is your thought on that? Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, you know my thought on it because I'm harping on it all the time. But Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> Expand, right. please. Okay, expanding. So my philosophy on fur is that it is an abundant natural resource. Why turn your nose up at it? Why thumb your nose at nature who's trying to provide you with a all-natural, free-range, biodegradable product? Biodegradable and, is the key there. Well, that's one of the keys, absolutely. So it always bugs me that these holier-than-thou, anti-fur animal rights kinds of folks yelp and howl about how horrible it is to use a natural resource like fur. And instead, oh, you can't use leather either, by the way. And you can't use wool because that's not nice to the sheep to keep them penned up and then shear them. And well, it's all horrible. To get you on rant, yeah, it's ahead. too late now. I'm ranting. Here we go. So you've got them saying you can't use any of this natural stuff. So your choices are linen and cotton, which are plant products. Okay, well, how sacred can you get? How do you grow cotton? You By wiping out a natural grassland that was full of wild animals and turning it into a cotton field that gets sprayed with pesticides until there's nothing left there but cotton plants that nothing eats. So there's no habitat left for the wildlife on thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of herbicide and pesticide-treated cotton fields. Linen, I suspect, is the same way. It comes from flax. If you've got big crop fields, you don't have a diverse environment that supports the kind of species that native habitat does. So you have foxes and coyotes living in a grassland, a forest, wherever they're living. They're living there because they've got the resources that they need. And that means you've got native plants, flowers, birds, reptiles, amphibians, small mammals, an entire community, rich living biosphere. And all you have to do is selectively harvest a sustainable number of those fur-bearing predators, get yourself a nice warm coat or hat out of the deal, and the whole cycle continues year after year indefinitely, and that's the way nature works. And that's why I like to hunt coyotes. <laughs> Boy, that just... I knew that would get a reaction. I just didn't know you didn't how know. big of a reaction. Yeah, it's the sermon. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I think it's time for us to go before you get on another. Let me tell you about no. Yeah, that is actually, I think, the justification for hunting fur bearers. I think it's a wonderful natural resource. From beavers and and ermine and martin and all the fur bearers throughout history have been an important contributor to the human need and and it's a resource that comes from nature so not why not use it why reject nature and replace it with man-made chemicals making your garments out of petroleum products come on i wouldn't i'm not even go there i had a comment but maybe maybe one of the things that that chapter brought to me is that we really have to live in balance with nature. Absolutely. And, and uh, if you hear extra noises because our dog is here. Is Covey over there making noises? Yes, she is. But anyway, to get back to we have to be mindful, I guess is the word mindful, of, of our resources and how we use them. And, yeah. And, and I think you brought that out, that if once nature gets out of balance, it's really hard to get back right yeah and most coyote hunters especially think that they're doing it to help out the deer population because coyotes have been implicated in significantly reducing localized deer herds and especially pronghorn and mountain lions have been implicated in wiping out 
herds of bighorn sheep, which are endangered in certain areas too. So, can I, can I interrupt you about mountain lions? Yeah. One of my fears of living out here is we don't hunt them enough for them to be naturally afraid of people. And particularly, and I don't want to get too political, but in California, the mountain lion population is getting bigger and more, yeah, it's, are less afraid of people. Yeah, it's pretty much peaked. I mean, if you don't hunt mountain lions, they're going to reach saturation point at which time they begin to fight and kill each other die from starvation. I remember several years ago before wolves were reintroduced to Idaho, the cougar population had gotten so big that they were finding them starving. They, they just were too, too much competition. They couldn't find enough to eat. So in a place like California where they decide that they're sacred animals and you have to worship them and nobody can hunt anymore and all that kind of stuff. Oh my gosh, can you imagine such a thing as a human being killed by a cougar? Well, if you want to know the number one state for being killed by cougars... <laughs> And well, that is that is a, a fear of mine. You know, I'm more afraid of cougars than I am of bears. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah, there aren't there aren't that many people taken by cougars, but it's definitely something that happens. I just saw a video last week of some guy being stalked by a cougar, and it actually charged him a few times, and he had to yell at it and throw sticks and rocks and whatever. But you know, this happens fairly often. So yeah, that's that's another reason to keep keep them on their toes and respecting us. Um, it's pretty much been proven that you can have wolves and grizzly bears and cougars living in places like the Idaho wilderness and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and, and these kinds of places. But, you know, even the animal rights people, uh, what we might tend to call the bunny huggers, don't seem to be too excited about reintroducing grizzly bears to Los Angeles, San Francisco, Sacramento, <laughs> Boulder, Colorado, although Boulder has a lot of cougars. Yeah, and yeah, but they attack people from time to time, too. So, you know, it's just common sense and a realistic approach, I think. But the bottom line for me is the sustainable use of natural resources. I really think we need to respect nature, appreciate it, and utilize those resources that are there for us to utilize. We're part of the system the same as the bunnies and the deer and the coyotes and the wolves. We all have to feed on one another, gruesome as though that may sound, but it's true. You know, it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, I'm going to be in the ground someday, and the carbon in me is going to eventually become the carbon in another living thing, and it's going to get recycled that way. So currently, I'm recycling elk and deer and pheasants and an occasional coyote and bobcat, too. Okay, let's let folks get back to uh, drinking coffee or working or driving Whatever. driving down the road here and sign off. The extra little noise is Covey. <laughs> yeah, Covey's demanding our attention, so I think we've been at this long enough. Hey, Ron Spomer here with my sidekick, Betsy, wishing all of you a wonderful day and a wonderful week. We will be back in another week with another podcast, and that'll probably be podcast number 17. Not sure what it's going to be yet, but hope you tune in and join us. Um, you can find these podcasts on most of your podcatchers. Uh, we are with Anchor, and they've got a great service for putting these podcasts out there. It makes it real easy for us. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We have RonSpomerOutdoors.com website. We invite you to join us there. 
read some of our blogs and articles, and also our YouTube channel where we post a lot of material on guns, ammo, optics, hunting tactics, natural history, wildlife, and all that fun stuff. So if you want to get the Patreon app, we invite you to join us and become a member of the Ron Spomer community on Patreon, and you can help us decide what sort of topics to cover in the future, and we'll just get through all this together. Ron Spomer signing out, reminding you, as always, hunt honest and shoot straight. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.